Welcome to Democracy Speaks. I'm your host, Cindy Black. On today's program, I'm honored to be interviewing Hedrick Smith on reclaiming the American dream. Hedrick Smith is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who is a reporter and editor for the New York Times, a producer and correspondent for the PBS show Frontline, and the author of several books, including the 2012 publication, Who Stole the American Dream? During his career as a reporter for the New York Times from 1962 to 1988, he covered such stories as the Martin Luther King Jr. and civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, and the Cold War from both Moscow and Washington. In 1971, as the Times chief diplomatic correspondent, Smith was a member of the team which produced the Pentagon Papers. And in 1974, he was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for international reporting for his coverage of the Soviet Union and its allies in Eastern Europe. Hedrick has worked for PBS since 1989, where he created 26 primetime specials focusing on topics such as terrorism, Wall Street, tax evasion, educational reform, healthcare, the environment, and Washington's power game. Welcome to the program, Hedrick, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, great pleasure to be with you, Cindy. I'm really interested in Washington State, fascinated with the politics, and I really like the work that you guys have been doing out there. Great. So basically, I just want to say you've had quite the career, and let's say you've been around the block a few times with your experience. Um, and right now, your focus seems to be on issues around democracy and what's facing democracy and what people are doing to write its course. So how did you decide to adopt this as a primary issue to cover and promote? What, what brought you here? Well, when the economy collapsed in 2008, 2009, I had been working on a number of programs for PBS Frontline, making documentaries about uh, the Wall Street fix. Is Walmart good for America? Can you afford to retire? Um, programs about the economy and why we were getting such enormous inequality of income and inequality of wealth in this country and how the economy really wasn't working uh, for the American people uh, and the middle class the way it had been working back in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. And I couldn't quite understand what had gone wrong in the housing collapse and the housing boom and bust. And, and I'd never really studied that kind of finance. So I got into that. I began to dig into that to make another documentary. And when I got into it, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is so much bigger than the housing crisis itself. It's the whole economy. And there's really a long story here uh, about how the economy and the political system became dysfunctional and hurt people. And I wound up by writing a book. I've written several books, but this was a new book for me, Who Stole the American Dream? My publisher wasn't entirely happy with that title. I said, did you just say something went wrong? And I said, no, it didn't just go wrong. Uh, people literally at the top of the economy were taking money away from people in the middle and the bottom. They were rooting more of the profits of American corporations to the CEOs and to the stockholders on Wall Street, and less and less was going to average workers and to the American middle class. So I got into that, and when I published that book, I went around the country and made a bunch of speeches, spoke at college campuses, spoke at uh, places like Seattle Town Hall and Commonwealth Club in San Francisco and 
uh, Boston Forum and, and all kinds of places around the country. And people began asking me what was going wrong, how could we fix it? Uh, and so I got interested in the fixes and how we were going to do something about it. And the more I looked into it, the more convinced I became that we weren't going to fix the economy. We weren't going to make the economy work better for average Americans unless we fix the political system. The political system had gone crazy, too. Uh, the people who had been accumulating the wealth and the power on Wall Street and in corporate America were taking that money and they were funneling it into political campaigns. So this was after the Citizens United decision kind of unleashed the floodgates for corporate and billionaire money just to flow like a Niagara Falls into the political system. So that's what gradually got me into looking what had gone wrong with politics and how politics and the concentration of money and power was having a direct impact, not just on issues like immigration or the environment um, or uh, social security or uh, after-school programs or healthcare, whatever. It was having a direct impact on just simply whether or not people could afford to live and whether or not they had a decent living standard, a livable wage, as they say. Um, so that took me into politics. And the two things are very closely connected, economics and politics. So I started a website called ReclaimTheAmericanDream.org. My book was Who Stole the American Dream? So now this is ReclaimTheAmericanDream.org to try to track what people were doing around the country about the minimum wage, about student debt, about a, what companies, were there any companies that were really more inclusive capitalism and less paying the big guys and the CEOs most of the money? And then I got into gerrymander reform and money in politics and dark money and public funding of campaigns and voters' rights. So you can see, I just moved from the economics into the politics and back and forth. So that's where I am now, looking at this country. Uh, how did our democracy get broken and how do we fix it? So it sounds like you started down this rabbit hole and you kept following it and one thing led to the other. And so how long did it take you to put this book together and doing your research for it? And, and what were the big takeaways that you came away at the end of writing it? You know, it's interesting. People don't understand how, how long it takes and why, why so much of today's journalism is so superficial. And the reason is it takes a long time and a lot of work. It took me two years to write that book, Who Stole the American Dream? What triggered that book for me was the collapse of the economy. And I was working, I just finished an environmental film, which actually affected Puget Sound. It was called Poison Waters. It was about what went wrong with the, the Clean Water Act uh, 35 years later. And I looked at Chesapeake Bay and Puget Sound. And I was about to start another documentary on the housing crisis. This is 2009 and the, the collapse of the markets. And that's what got me started in the book. My book actually came out after Citizens United, but my work started uh, before Citizens United. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. What you said is I started down a rabbit hole and I just kept chasing after uh, my discoveries. And I spent an entire year doing research and reporting. I, I didn't write anything except notes to myself and summarizing my research and that kind of stuff. I didn't start out to write the book. In fact, I, when I then wrote the book, it took me a whole year to write the book. And then it took me another half year on top of that to rewrite it and revise it four times. So it took me about two and a half years to write that book. Um, 
And that's one of the reasons why you don't see so much really great reporting in a lot of newspapers and certainly on television radio stations is the reporters uh, and the writers don't have enough time. The producers don't have enough time to do it. It takes a lot of time to really learn something new as opposed to sort of rejigger what you knew yesterday and just catch it up with what happened overnight or what happened today, uh, which is what a lot of the daily news is. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time digging into that. Yeah, you're talking about in-depth reporting, which doesn't happen too much anymore. And I'm sure through the course of writing the book, things were changing. Um, like you said, you started that after the economy, but then you have court decisions like Citizens United and the McCutcheon decision that unleashed right. more money into the system that I'm sure, you know, as you were doing the course of that. So I want to know what the big takeaways from the book were for you in, in your discoveries. Yeah, for me, there were a couple of things. Number one, the economy really did used to work better for the middle class. And it was very important to me. That's sort of what I had remembered from growing up myself back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But I wanted to be sure. And I went back and I checked the numbers and I checked all kinds of statistics and data there. And I found out, that, you know, when, when the economy improved in the 35, 40, 45 years after World War II, all different parts of the social strata moved up together. The bottom 20% moved up about as much as the top 20% percentage-wise and the middle 20%. And, and, and there was a better distribution of income. And the next question, I said, how the heck did that happen? Why was that happening? And what is there different then and now? Well, there are a couple of things that matter. Number one, the leaders of American business, if you went back to Charlie Wilson, the head of General Motors back in 1950, he believed that the job of the CEO was to balance the interests of the various uh, constituents in the corporation, the various parts of the, of the corporation. And that meant, obviously, the owners, the people who own the stock. It meant the managers, but it also meant the workers. It meant the suppliers, the people who provided the parts to the cars, worked for the parts industry, tires and batteries and steering wheels and, and seats and all the other things. And they had an interest. The banks that loaned the money, the communities where they had factories, everybody had a stake in it. It's called stakeholder capitalism. So the whole idea was, and it wasn't just Charlie Wilson at General Motors. I mean, Reg Jones at General Electric, people that ran Exxon. I, I kept reading stuff again and again. And these guys believed, these were the leaders, they believed that a strong, prosperous American middle class meant for a really good economy. Uh, the whole idea of, of the virtuous circle of the, of the economy, that if you paid middle class workers well, uh, by and large, they'd go out and spend 95% of their income in good times. Maybe in bad times, they'd spend more than 100% of their income. But it was the consumer demand. It was all those tens of millions of people making good pay, spending their money. That was the engine that was driving economic growth. So they saw a connection. And these are the CEOs now I'm talking about. These are not just average workers. These are not just academicians, not just scholars and economists. These are the people who are running the corporations. And they thought they were profiting. Their companies were doing well because the average workers were doing well, that there was an interconnection. And we moved from that to the belief that, uh, you know, in the last 25, 30 years, people at the top of American corporations believed in cost-cutting, 
hold down the wages, hold down the benefits uh, of average workers, move jobs overseas, find cheaper labor in China or Vietnam or Bangladesh or the Philippines or where have you, uh, cut costs, cut costs and deliver more of the profits to Wall Street. And you saw more and more inequality in the new idea in capitalism, which is shareholder capitalism. There was stakeholder capitalism back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, which worked for the middle class. And now there's shareholder capitalism, which is focused on returning the maximum return to shareholders, the biggest payoffs and dividends and profits and buybacks you know, to the people on Wall Street and the top 1% in particular that owns the biggest chunk of American companies. So there was a huge change in the mindset of American corporate leaders. That was the first thing. The second thing that reinforced that was that back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it didn't matter whether you had Republican presidents or Democratic presidents, um, Eisenhower and Nixon uh, or Kennedy and Johnson, they all believed that social policy should kind of help level off the economy. You had a minimum wage, which got increased practically every year, but every year or two, and it got heavy bipartisan votes. It wasn't a Democratic idea uh, or a Republican idea. It was embraced by both parties. And then they had, believe it or not, they had 92% income tax on the top incomes in the country, which today is impossible. I mean, yeah, the that top would level, be unheard of. That's right. People today would say you can't grow the economy uh, if you have that high in income tax. Well, that's nonsense. In fact, the economy was growing faster in those years when we had that high tax and high middle-class pay and a prosperous middle class. We had three, three and a half percent average growth every year. And in the last 25 or 30 years, doesn't matter whether you're talking Republicans or Democrats in the White House, the average growth rate has been about one to one and a half percent. So our growth has been much slower when we had high inequality of income than it was when we had closer uh, kinds of income than we, than we have today. Back in the old days, Charlie Wilson, uh, the highest paid corporate chief in American economy, he made about 40 times as much as the average worker in General Motors. Today, uh, Ted Cook, Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple, makes about 4,000 times as much as the average Apple worker. And when you go into an Apple store, those are all young people who have college degrees. He's making 4,000 times as much. And back in the old days, it used to be 40 or 50 times as much. Radically different. Typical pay today of a corporate CEO of a major corporation is about 300 times as much as the average worker. It's far greater than it was back in the old days. You, yes. had, you, had, you had a different belief on the part of the CEOs about the proper way to behave and the smart way to run companies. And you had, you had a, a rising... Uh, minimum wage. You had uh, programs to retrain workers, which, by the way, we've cut radically uh, in the last 15 or 20 years, last 30 years anyway. Uh, we had heavy taxes on estates. We had heavier taxes uh, on the highest incomes. So the, the idea was to cut off the tops of the mountains, as it were, the economic pay of the people at the top, and bring up the floor uh, under the minimum wage. Because when you raise the minimum wage, you don't just raise it for the bottom people, but the people who are, you know, 10%, 20% above that, they get a pay raise too. So you're pushing things up towards the middle. The whole idea was to, uh, to eliminate the extremes, poverty on one end and extreme wealth at the other end. So there was that second idea. The first idea was the business leaders share the wealth, make the economy grow. The second idea was 
level off as much as you can from the bottom and the top. You don't level off everything, but you take the tops of the mountains off and you raise the bottom. Those two basic ideas created the heyday of the American middle class from 1945 up until about 1980. Those ideas reigned, and then gradually they got undermined in the 80s and the 90s. And by the time you get to the 90s and on now into this later, ever since 2000, it's all been about maximum return to the shareholders, maximum pay for CEOs. I mean, you got CEOs making, and sometimes they get stock awards, they make 500, 600, 700 million dollars a year. Uh, I think there was a story the other day that it would take the average uh, Walmart worker uh, a thousand years, a thousand years to make the same pay as that Walmart CEO makes in one year. Yeah. Uh, that's just way out of whack. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, I'm Cindy Black, and you're listening to Democracy Speaks. I'm speaking with prize-winning journalist Hedrick Smith about democracy and reclaiming the American dream. So we're talking about um, your book, Who Stole the American Dream, and how things have really shifted. Now you have a website, reclaimtheamericandream.org, which is the topic of today's program. So we know kind of have a little bit of understanding about where, how we got here. So now people are looking how to get out of there. So what does reclaiming that American dream look like to you? And, And why did you decide to put up this website? Well, what happened was I was going around the country giving speeches about my book, Reclaim the America, uh, Who Stole the American Dream? And people were asking me questions about, well, how do we fix it? Is anybody doing anything? What can we do about it? This is terrible. The inequality is wrong. The political system, Washington, has been captured by corporations and lobbyists and special interests, and they're not listening to average voters like me. What can we do? And I began looking for stories about what, what, what was happening. Were there any people who were fighting back? Were there any people who were getting things done? And I kept finding more and more stuff. I was really interested. There was more than I realized was going on. It was positive. But I didn't see it covered much in the, in the media. It was covered here and there, but it was sort of buried and you couldn't find it. And in order to have something I could tell the audiences I was talking to, I said, I got to have a place where I can put this information. So I created this website. And on the website, what I do is I track progress reports state by state uh, on on the minimum wage, on student debt, uh, on uh, inc- what I call inclusive capitalism, that is companies that are more inclusive, are there things that are going on that are helpful for average people. And then when I got into politics, voters' rights, gerrymandering, big money in politics, dark money, disclosing dark money, public funding of campaigns. And what I began to do was collect information from around the country. I thought, geez, I just put it out there. If more people knew what was going on, uh, for example, with Citizens United, you know about that, you ran the campaign in Washington State back in 2016 uh, to roll back Citizens United to get a popular vote on it. Well, you know, you and the people in Washington State may know something about I-735 and what you guys did in 2016. But I was interested, it passed in Colorado, it passed in Montana, it passed in California, uh, and then and then legislatures in Connecticut to, to other states like Nevada, they did it. So I began to collect all this information. So you can now go to reclaimtheamericandream.org, and you look at the toolbar at the top, and you look at issues, and you look at progress reports, and under progress reports, you say, all right, Citizens United, uh, constitutional amendment. Let me go look and see what happened there. Or then you say, 
voters' rights, voter ID laws, as some states have, have put in top voter ID laws. Other states, like Washington State, have made it easier to vote. You can vote by mail. You don't even have to use a stamp anymore in Washington State to vote by mail. In some places, they have motor voter registration. When you renew your driver's license, you know, you're automatically re-registered to vote, even if you move from one place to another in the state. So I began to track all this. And now it's out there like an information cafeteria. And then it's interesting. Right now, I can see there's a lot of traffic on my website for what uh, I call voter organization. Uh, we not only have an issue brief on each of the issues, it tells you a little bit about the history, and we have a progress report that tells you what the progress is, uh, you know, around uh, the different states and what different states are doing. And then we have a success story that shows you, you know, a state that really uh, local people really went to work and how they created a movement the way you created a movement for I-735 in Washington State. But we have it for every issue, uh, no matter what the issue is. And then we have a list of organizations that are working on these problems nationwide. And we list them and we list the people who are working for them. We give you their emails and we give you their, their telephone numbers. And I can tell you right now with the campaign coming up, that's the most active part of our website right now. People are, I don't know, in, in Missouri and in Michigan and Ohio and in Colorado they're voting this year on gerrymander reform in Baltimore and in the, uh, and in Denver and in some other places. They're voting on public funding of campaigns. Well, they can go on our website, reclaimamericandream.org, and look under organization lists, and they can see the organizations. They can call up and say, how do I get this thing going? How do I get it on the ballot? Uh, you know, how do I get mobilized people? How do I get them out to vote? That kind of stuff. So what I was trying to do was just kind of put an information bank out there, kind of a political library, economic library out there, free of charge so people can just go take a look at it and take what they want. If they're interested in one issue, they go look at that. If they're interested in another issue, they go look at that. Uh, you know, if they don't know what they're interested in, they can go kind of you know, meander through the cafeteria and see it. And we've got maps that shows what's going on in different states. We've got different charts. We've got all kinds of stuff up there. And what's amazing is we've had probably a quarter million visitors on the website taking a look at this stuff and using it. That's the whole idea is just, put, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm, I believe that we need reform. I believe our democracy is broken. I think it's in bad shape. I think money and interests have have captured it. I think it's not working as well for average people. And there's pretty good evidence in poll after poll after poll that people are unhappy about that. But I'm not pushing one solution or another. My idea as a journalist is put the information out there and let people tap into it, you know, by, by going to reclaimtheamericandream.org. And now I've done some video and I got a YouTube channel called The People versus the Politicians. The People versus the Politicians on YouTube. You go to YouTube and dot org and then go dot com excuse me and then you go to the people versus the politician and you'll see a bunch of videos that are now dealing with some of the same issues that i've got on the website that's great and i i want to go back to what's interesting about what you focus on and um um reclaim the american reclaim the american dream dot org and the people versus the politician is you smoke focus on smaller campaigns so what is it about these smaller local efforts that appeals to you? Why, do you? why are you interested in covering those campaigns and those efforts? That, that is a great question. 
you need to know the questions even kind of sharper and bigger than you realize. I used to run the Washington Bureau for the New York Times. I worked for the New York Times for 26 years. Uh, my focus was um, largely at that time on foreign policy and national security affairs. That was where I worked up. But I, I'm one of those Washington Beltway journalists. And so when I got concerned about America and the American economy and the inequality in the American economy, and I got concerned about politics and seeing the middle class getting shoved aside and overrun by big financial interests, um, I tended to look at things in Washington. That was where I'd been looking. But what I realized very quickly was what people around the country realized, and that is Washington's the source of the problem in many ways. Uh, there's such gridlock, there's such partisan, hyper-partisan tension between the two parties. The lines are drawn. We've just seen it with the whole battle over the Kavanaugh uh, nomination, but this has been going on and getting worse and worse and worse over the last 20 or 30 years, that it dawned on me that things were not happening in Washington. And when I started to look for where there were solutions, you know, I discovered that people in Connecticut, because there was a couple of political scandals in Connecticut, came up with the idea of public funding of campaigns, and they got a system that worked so well that everybody running for a major statewide office was taking public funding instead of taking mega dollars from the big donors, and that 80% of the people in the legislature were voluntarily taking public funding. And then I discovered that there were all kinds of people, middle-class people, professionals, who were making average pay, 40, 50, 60, $70,000 a year, and they were able to run for office for the state legislature, whereas under the old system, they couldn't do it. And then when they ran, they won. And you, suddenly I discovered in Connecticut, uh, you know, there were two or three times as many people who were black and minority, and there were twice as many women in the legislature. And then that began to change the agenda. I ran into one woman, uh, State Senator Marilyn Moore. Um, she runs a nonprofit in Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, that advises black women uh, on how to deal with breast cancer. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, it's not good information in many inner city and average communities among those women on this issue. And she decides she's going to run for the state uh, Senate. She gets elected and she's now chairman of the Health and Social Services Committee of the Connecticut State Legislature. With the kind of knowledge and personal experience she is bringing to the legislature, which didn't used to be there based on her experience. So I began to see that in Connecticut, they were doing that. And in Florida, not a state where you would assume there was much political reform, they came up with a really daring and bold gerrymander reform to stop politicians from rigging elections by drawing election maps to make sure their party stayed in power and they stayed in office. You know, and, and that was interesting. And then I found, you know, in Oregon, uh, they were one of the first states to implement motor voter registration. Uh, and West Virginia, who figured West Virginia? They have same-day voter registration in West Virginia. And I mean, what happened was, Cindy, I just, I'm a reporter. I was, uh, for the New York Times, I was a foreign correspondent for years. I worked in Russia. I worked in Saigon, Vietnam. I worked in Cairo. I worked in Paris. And I learned a long time ago the business of get up off your butt, get out of the office, get off the internet, go out and talk to people. And so that's what I learned as a foreign correspondent. And so I began to treat America 
as if it was a foreign country. And my job was to get out, get out of Washington, not stay talking to the same people, not stay listening to the same politicians uh, in the city who were denouncing each other, but who basically didn't know a heck of a lot about what was going on in the country, except maybe in their own home district. And they certainly didn't know much about what was going on in the state next door or state somewhere else in the country. So that's how I got into it. I mean, I got in, I got into looking at the states, but I thought Washington was hopeless. I frankly gave up on it. And a lot of my colleagues in Washington said, you're crazy to go out in the states. You're not going to find out anything. I said to them, you're crazy staying in Washington. There's nothing going on here. This is all a war of words. It's all a war of words. It's nobody's taking any action. Um, now, this is not entirely true. There were some things. I mean, Obamacare got passed, and, and there were there were some pieces of legislation getting passed. But by and large, if you look at Washington over the last couple of decades, there are not many of the nation's major problems that have been dealt with. We have a rotting infrastructure. If you go to China and Japan, as I and you see the kind of trains and highways and railroads they have, if you see their cellular phone system, the kind. I mean, we look backward. It's amazing. People don't know that. And so our infrastructure, we're not dealing with immigration. We're not dealing with healthcare. We started dealing with, and now we just got a big bramble. And so we're stuck. And, you know, one issue after another is not being dealt with. And the reason is the political system is non-functional. It doesn't work. So people are starting to tackle that at the state level. Uh, you see dark money. Some states don't have very good rules on dark money. California's got great rules. So I got out there and I saw, you know, their story out there. So basically it is the old reporter's game. Go look, go see for yourself. It's called shoe leather journalism. You know, wear out the leather on the bottom of your shoes. Go knock on doors, go talk to people, go find out who's got a good idea, who's building a better mousetrap, who's got a better reform. And then that report, just put that on the internet and share it with people. That's 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 basically what I've done. It's a simple idea. It's just one hell of a lot of work. <laughs> I, I really appreciate the type of journalism you're doing and going after and covering these type of efforts. Because I agree with you. I think the real work in saving democracy is on the local and state level because it's not happening in Washington, D.C. It's not. And I agree with you. We'll be right back with more from Hedrick Smith after a brief station break. Stay tuned. <laughs> 